This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. The three white men who shot and killed Ahmaud Arbery, the black man running through their neighborhood, were convicted of murder today in Georgia. We'll go in-depth. We'll also go to Europe. COVID infections are once again on the rise, and countries are starting to ramp up vaccine requirements, even as right-wing politicians step up their opposition. And the number of people asking for unemployment benefits has fallen to its lowest level in 50 years. It's just one piece of data showing a booming economy. So how come so many of us aren't feeling it? Who says a pop song has to be short to top the charts? Taylor Swift has proved that wrong. Her 10-minute song took over the number one spot, making some history. Uh, Bye-bye, American Pie. Speaking of pie, Thanksgiving's tomorrow. We'll check in on LA's regional food bank to see if they're feeling supply chain issues. And then some of us skipped the full spread last year, so maybe you're a bit rusty when it comes to Thanksgiving. We're going to have a chef come on and offer some guidance. Oh, is he giving us food, too? No. Just food for thought? Yes, food for thought. Okay. Uh, we start, though, in Georgia with Ahmad uh, Arbery. Shinwei Foster is criminal defense attorney and founder of the Foster Law Firm, LLC, in Atlanta, and she served for many years as an Atlanta public defender. Thanks for being with us. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. So this was, of course, a case that was being watched not only in uh, the state of Georgia, but throughout the U.S. and indeed probably the rest of the world. What message do you think that jury sent? Justice. I mean, I think that with the way that our country is uh, right now with just with the Rittenhouse uh, verdict and, you know, just with the division um, in our country, I think that this this was something that we needed justice had to be served and the jury the juries uh, the jurors sent a message that you can't just hunt someone down uh, because of the race their race or because of your racism and kill them i think that this message was clear and i think that it was the right verdict what was important here as it moved through points you think resonated with the jury obviously no self-defense claim and then a lot came up with this wasn't even told to the police officers right off the bat that it was some kind of citizen's arrest scenario, and the, the prosecutor really hammered on that one. Yeah, the prosecution did an excellent job, especially in their closing. Linda Donikowski, uh, who I've actually um, had cases with, I, I think that she really hit it out of the park with sending the message that these men were angry. This was not uh, men who were trying to protect their community. They saw a black man. They were angry that this black man was running through their neighborhood and they hunted him down and killed him. Um, the fact that he would not stop to their demands, the fact that you know he kept running. Um, you know, she she made it clear in her closing argument that, that this is unacceptable. And I'm glad that the jury, the jury saw through the defense uh, attorney's arguments trying to basically make um, Armand, Mr. Aubrey, the um, aggressor in this case. I think it was clear that this was not self-defense. They hunted him down and they killed him. As you know, of course, there was great concern, great controversy about the composition of the jury, right? It was, if I'm not mistaken, I think it was 11 uh, white people in the jury and one African-American. And yet they all had to have a uh, unanimous verdict, which they did, guilty of murder, for all three of the people in Involved. What does that say about the jury system? And maybe what does it say about the state that you're in, Georgia? Well, what it says about the state that I'm in, in Georgia, I think even the, the defense attorneys in the way that they argued their closing, I think that they expected that the people of Glenn County, given the composition of that area, 
and given how this case was really handled from the start, I think that they felt that, you know, that there were racial undertones, that the jurors, given that it was majority white, were going to be, you know, against Ahmad because he was black. He was a black man in a neighborhood that apparently the, the, the defendants thought that he had no business being in. And even with some of the statements that were made by the defense attorneys, you could tell that they were trying to play that that race card in essence, and that these white jurors, I think it was, I think nine white women um, and three white men. And one, I believe the, the um, African-American on the juror, I think was a male, I believe. I think that they thought that they would feel sorry or relate to these three white defendants. But I think that the prosecution did such a good job in presenting the facts and making it clear um, that this was a human being. It didn't matter the race that he was, even though it was because of his race that he was hunted down and attacked. But the prosecution did a great job in making it clear that this is a human. You can't just hunt people down and kill them. Chinway Foster, criminal defense attorney, founder of the Foster Law Firm, LLC, in Atlanta. Rising coronavirus infections, bitter fights over vaccine policies, that's all taking place in parts of Europe. But is that a taste of things to come for us? You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Still to come, food banks struggling to get together all the ingredients for Thanksgiving meals, just like uh, the rest of us. We'll talk about challenges of feeding the poor in the midst of the supply chain crunch. Before that, the economy is uh, doing pretty good. There's a lot of indicators. So why doesn't it feel like it's doing pretty good? Because gas is too much. That's right. Things are expensive and it makes people unhappy. Right. Right now, though, Europe is finding itself as the epicenter again of a global COVID surge heading into the winter months. And right as countries like Austria are trying to strengthen COVID vaccination requirements amid rising infections, there are increasing political tensions over mandates and a fresh round of lockdowns. Joining us now is Dr. Martin McKee, who is a professor of European public health at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Doctor, thanks for being with us. Hi, nice to be with you again. So it, it is very troubling. I mean, watching it certainly from the vantage point of being in the U.S. to see what is unfolding in parts of, of Europe, in particular, of course, Austria, where there's a mandate for vaccination, I think, starting in February, where there's another lockdown. Uh, you've got a lot of these right wing parties in places like Austria and I think Germany and France as well. Uh, what is actually going on there? Well, in terms of the epidemiological situation, what we're seeing is a very varied picture across Europe. Some countries are still managing to contain the virus reasonably well. Spain, Portugal, France, to some extent, although there are a few problems there, but others have seen a very rapid rise. And it's the ones in Central Europe, Austria, Hungary, Czech Republic, Slovakia, and to some extent, Germany as well, where we're seeing problems. In terms of the political aspect, the the vaccine issue, I think what we're seeing now is that there is a growing, um, I think, frustration with by many people who are saying, well, actually, those people who are not being vaccinated are contributing to these recurring waves of COVID. And there's a sense that maybe we need to do things that we wouldn't have done in the past, like vaccine mandates. And we've got one coming up in Austria. 
and it looks like there may be one in Germany. Certainly the new government that's just agreed, the coalition that's just been agreed today. Olaf Scholz, is, um, the new chancellor, has hinted that there may be some support for something there. If people are pushing back on more restrictions and lockdowns, though, they're probably going to push back on the mandates. Or is it the kind of thing like in France where, you know what, if you want to go do anything, you're going to have to have this. So, you know what, uh, either eat at home or eat at the restaurant, but get your vaccine. Sorry. Yeah, I think we need to be careful because there certainly have been a number of demonstrations in Austria. There was some trouble in, in Belgium and in the Netherlands. But the polling data is showing more and more people in support of these measures. So uh, there certainly is a challenge, but the vaccine passes are working really well. I've seen them working in Austria and in France myself and uh, well, in Austria and France particularly. And you just show it in your phone when you go to a restaurant, you go into a large shop and everybody does it. It's easy. You just flick on your phone and uh, they seem to be very widely accepted and they are having an impact. People are being increasingly vaccinated. There was a huge rise in the number of people that most people in one day ever uh, in Austria were vaccinated at the end of last week. So I think there's more and more uh, political willingness to do things that we wouldn't have done in the past, partly because politicians are seeing that the public are supporting this, even if there is a very vociferous minority that is objecting to it. You know, when things uh, unfold in, in Europe, for example, anywhere overseas for that matter, Americans do tend to be many anyway, sort of smug about it. I remember in the early stages of the pandemic when there were cases of, you know, cropping up in Europe and people in this country were going, well, it's not going to happen here. Well, so much for that. Um, are there lessons to be learned from what is now unfolding, both from a medical point of view and a political point of view, that we here in the U.S. might uh, really kind of take heed to learn quickly? Well, I think also it's always important in these times to remember that the European Union is 27 countries. You are 50 states in the District of Columbia, and there are huge differences in all of those. So it's very, I think I was, I'm rather reluctant to talk, to talk about Europe or the United States because there's a, an, a, a really broad range of experiences. But that said, I think we can go right back to basics, which is to say that this is a virus which is transmitting through the air. It gets into the air. And if you're in a crowded indoor space, then you are at risk of being infected. But we have vaccines that are very effective. However, um, for the vaccines to work really well, you need to get as many people vaccinated as possible. And we're also seeing some evidence of waning immunity in older people. So the boosters really do seem to be making a difference. In Israel, we have pretty good evidence of that now. And we're beginning to see that in the United Kingdom where we've been boosting for some time as well. So I think those are the fundamental medical messages. I think in terms of the politics, what we are seeing is that ideas that would not have been considered as part of the sort of norm normal responses are now being considered, particularly around vaccine passports, vaccine mandates, because of this recognition that essentially you cannot control a pandemic if everybody just looks out for themselves. We are all in this together. Things that I do impact on you. If I wear it, well, I do wear a face mask, but I'm not wearing a face mask primarily to protect myself. I'm wearing it to protect other people. And actually, it's a symbol of solidarity. Now, of course, that is very different between 
some parts of the United States and most of Europe, uh, solidarity is very strong, social solidarity. I fully recognize, you know, the, reading the work of political scientists in the US, there are big differences between different between, say, Minnesota and Alabama. Um, but uh, that said, I think the, the sense of solidarity is becoming stronger. And that means that the governments and politicians are willing to say everybody has to play their part. Dr. Martin McKee, Professor of European Public Health, London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. So I started uh, to uh, listen to Taylor Swift's uh, new song. I started, I think, three days ago, just yeah, finished. Still finished. Yeah. yeah. They say you can't make a long pop song and hope for success. <laughs> oh, yeah. This is KNX In-Depth, along with Charles Feldman. I'm Mike Simpson. Coming up, uh, we have a culinary crash course for those Thanksgiving chefs out there who might be a little rusty on preparing a turkey and all the trimmings. And before that, should a river or a lake or a mountain or a forest with a plant on your uh, windsill wind <laughs> have the same legal rights that a person does. Right now, though, conventional wisdom in pop music, you got to have three minutes, right? Short and sweet, and that's the recipe for success. And then comes Taylor Swift and the 10-minute-plus version of All Too Well uh, that turns it all on its head because it's at the top of the charts. Gary Trust, Senior Director of Charts at Billboard. Uh, so, Gary, what is it about this song? Um, you know, the going idea is you're sad about five minutes in, and and then you've got five more minutes to go. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, just in case it wasn't a, a sad enough audience, uh, <laughs> yeah. Taylor's uh, making sure. Uh, thank you so much for, for having me on, uh, guys. Yeah, I mean, Taylor is, I mean, she's, uh, she's always uh, kind of uh, been an artist who can go beyond the norm in terms of what's accepted in pop music. And I, I think there's a couple of things with this song. Uh, one is obviously people love the song. It's it's one of her uh, classics in terms of uh, just how much people have liked the song for so long since she first put out the five and a half minute version back in 2012 on a Red album. So it, it's always been a fan favorite. She she tweeted back in uh, you know, as far as uh, 2018 that you know this song was never a single at radio, and she couldn't believe that when she performed it in concert people were singing along like it was one of her biggest hits that got played all the time. So she knew there was something there. She's always loved the song. But I, I think beyond that, there's this narrative that's really built that she now has the freedom now that she's uh, getting her own masters, re-recording her albums, that if she wants to do a 10 minute song, she, she now has the freedom to do that. She isn't uh, at the point where it's the beginning of her career, where she kind of has to sit back and say, okay, what's, what's traditionally done here. She wants to have this 10 minute song, which she always wanted to be longer. She can do it now. And I think fans, as much as they love the song, they also love that. Yeah. Uh, you know, Taylor's on this level now where she gets to make those decisions. Great for her. Great for us. It's really a win-win. So there's so much built into the narrative of the song beyond it just being a great song on its own. But is she able to to uh, get away with the 10-minute song largely because people now listen mostly by streaming? Because in the days when everybody just listened to the radio, I mean, you know, a 10-minute song was something that most program directors would say no to. Yeah, and it still is. It's interesting yeah. if you look at the, the breakdown this week. The song is number one 
largely on streams. It got uh, over 50 million streams in the week, sold over uh, 50,000 downloads, which is a good number to sell nowadays. Radio uh, has, has just sort of sampled it a little bit. It's not being promoted as a radio single. Uh, Republic Records knows that, of course, radio's generally not going to play a 10-minute song. So th there have been some stations that have played the 10-minute version here and there, and good for them for, for taking advantage of the buzz. But yeah, that's a great point that in the past, uh, you kind of had to sell and you had to be on radio. Ever since streaming has become the dominant metric in music, there is that uh, freedom to now, uh, yeah, if you want to do a 10 minute song, no one's going to stop you. It's up to the listener at that point to play it. Uh, you, know, you still have to get people to listen to the whole song, hopefully. And, and they clearly did. But yeah, that's a good point that, um, you know, radio is now a piece of the puzzle. Do others get a little more freedom with the streaming to experiment? Or are we just back to her being her and being able to do this because she's Taylor Swift? Yeah, I think that's part of it. I mean, also, you know, how many artists can can even write a, a 10 minute song? If you look back historically, there's, you know, Springsteen and Bob Dylan. That's you're, you're talking about how you're you're sad five minutes in and, and you're only halfway there. That's that's really a talent to, to keep a song going like that. And, you know, she, we're on a 10 minute song she puts out the 15 minute video as well so you know 10 could, is nothing could, could compared, Adele, compared to the video could Adele, could Adele get away with something that long I mean she's like really good at misery <laughs> uh, I know it we're, we're saying uh, in a different uh, billboard conversation that you know we're we're so sad that these artists are sad, but it's it's good for listeners because they make great music <laughs> <laughs> when they are. Yeah, I mean take the Adele's new album. There's a there are a bunch of songs that are close to seven minutes. So yeah, what's 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 three more minutes? Oh, after so they're, they're neck and neck. Seven <laughs> seven minutes, ten minutes. Wow. Who's you think Taylor Swift is going to go for like a feature length film version of the song? Yeah, I mean, who 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 knows at this point, right? That, you know, no no one would have uh, guessed that she'd be recording her entire catalog, and now she's doing that. So, yeah, I think uh, that's what's fun about it too. Is you couldn't you couldn't have planned this, and you know, if there are other artists who are seeing this or other labels and think, hey, Taylor did it, maybe I can do it. There, there's just so much organic uh, elements to how she did it that I think if anyone tried to do it at this point, it might come off as not natural, not organic. So I think, I, you know, never say never, because, uh, you know, this is the longest uh, number one by runtime ever on the Billboard Hot 100. It passed American Pie by uh, Don McLean, hmm. who, who was very gracious. He, he put out a quote saying he's very uh, happy to have someone of Taylor's talent level uh, take the record from him. But yeah, it's just, uh, it's, it's, it's probably not likely, but I wouldn't say it's impossible that someone, someone else could do that. Gary Trust, Senior Director of Charts at Billboard. This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. The number of Americans seeking unemployment benefits after losing a job has hit its lowest level in 50 years. Couple that with some uh, big job creation months, fast-rising GDP and rising wages, the economy doesn't look all too bad emerging from the pandemic. So how come nobody seems to be feeling good about things right now? Yeah, well, the data looks good. Most of us aren't reading the weekly jobless reports. We're just paying really high prices for stuff like, I don't know, gas. Claudia Assam is an economist, senior fellow at the Jane Family Institute and served as chief of the Division of Consumer and Community Affairs at the Federal Reserve Board. Thanks for being with us. So, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, you pick up the paper or you, you, you turn on the TV or radio and you hear about all these uh, figures and it sounds OK, except you know, like we just mentioned, you go and you try to fill up 
up uh, your car and you're paying more money. You go to the supermarket and you try to buy food and you're paying more money. You go to a restaurant and you can't get served because there's a job shortage or, or a shortage of people willing to work, apparently, so you can't get served. So it doesn't sound like things are as rosy as the figures would seem to indicate. Right. Well, first, and thank you for having me on today. And I absolutely agree with everything you said. And it just underscores this entire crisis. These last two years have been an absolute roller coaster and a mess, right? Like we've had all kinds of cross currents and surprises. And frankly, at this point, we're exhausted. And one of the things that we're seeing now, in particular, the inflation. Like legitimately prices have risen a lot this year for a lot of families, the necessities, putting gas in the tank, buying the groceries, these are a big part of the budget. So when these prices go up, there's a real squeeze and that's gonna hurt and it's not gonna make you real happy. Um, and, and that on top of that inflation is one of those words kind of like taxes that causes an emotional reaction on top of the reality. I mean, the reality is we are paying more at the store, but most families got a lot of extra money from the federal government during the crisis. $11,000 in stimulus checks to families of four, the child tax credits up to $300 a month. So a lot of people had the extra cushion to pay for this, but it's still, A, it hurts, and B, we don't know what happens next. So there's just a lot of fear and kind of emotional reaction, which is totally real, like, and it's important to listen to it, but it's just, it's hard to make sense, like you said, of all these good numbers we see and then how upset people are. <laughs> so then what I'm hearing is it's been messy and the way out of it is going to continue to be messy. It is, but we are pointed in the right direction. You know, like, it's not... Well, I mean, first of all, I know there's a lot of, you, you see a lot of headlines, you hear from a lot of people that, you know, you go to buy everything for Thanksgiving, which is often a lot of food. And it's like, wow, that turkey is way more expensive. And yet it's going to be much safer for us to be together for Thanksgiving. I know a lot of people didn't have that holiday together as a family last year at all. So we are, we're in, we're in such a better place than last year, but we are not back to before the pandemic, not even close, but we're pointing in that direction. It is a very bumpy ride. It's a very uneven recovery. Um, that's always the case, but this one is just, it, it's so much more severe. And it, it, it frankly is just hard for everybody to digest and to know what comes next. You know, what's interesting, uh, Claudia, I was reading this morning, I don't know if you, if you saw this item in the paper, how uh, some European countries are uh, really making an effort to recruit um, both trained and untrained immigrants because there is a job shortage. And just like the U.S., they have a lot of people who, for one reason or another, uh, because of the pandemic, have decided not to return to their jobs. And so they're really going out of their way. And there's great competition in some Western European countries to uh, get uh, you know immigrant workers. And in this country, it's not quite the same enthusiasm, to say the least, is it? Yeah, well, that's immigration and the labor shortage. It COVID has is the root of all evil, right? Like it has caused all of the disruptions, either directly or indirectly, in this crisis. And yet, another thing that it has done is prey on the problems or the decisions that we made before the pandemic. 
for years, the United States has been tightening up its immigration, making, you know, you know, making it um, more difficult, fewer work visas. And that was a political decision, right? You can argue about whether that was right or wrong, but there was a decision made by the government to go on that path. Well, then we're in a labor shortage now. Those are not, like those were decisions made over several years to flip the switch temporarily and bring more workers in. It's, I mean, frankly, it just overstresses a very stressed and frankly dysfunctional political environment in Washington DC to make those kind of choices. But yes, in this moment, immigration could be helpful, particularly there's some of the um, types of jobs that Americans frankly aren't as excited to take that a lot of uh, immigrant workers have, have often staffed in like agricultural meat processing, you know, those kind of positions. But there's also this, you know, we should think about the long-term, like those, those often are extremely important contributors as workers in our economy. But yeah, so I mean, it makes sense that Europe, some countries are trying to go that route. It's, it's a very fraught solution in many countries. The United States is not the only one that has a difficult relationship at times with immigration. Um, but yeah, I mean, at this point, it's like throw everything you can at this, you know, at solving these problems. Yeah. All right. Claudia Zom, economist and uh, senior fellow at the Jane Family Institute. Claudia, thanks for talking to us. Should a forest or a desert or a lake have legal rights, just like you and I do when we come back. This is KNX In-Depth, Mike Simpson and Charles Feldman. Giving legal rights to animals used to be scoffed at until several court cases backed up the notion that, yes, animals do have some basic legal rights and protections, just like we all do. Well, that idea is starting to be extended to the rest of nature, and there is already a couple of court cases, both here in the U.S. and in other countries, backing up the idea that, yes, a river or a forest or some other piece of Mother Nature does deserve and have legal rights. Karen Bradshaw, professor at Arizona State University's Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law, author of the book, The New Animal Rights, How Uncovering the Biological Origins of Property Can Save America's Wildlife. Karen, thanks for being with us. Um, as a scene setter, can you take us through a couple of those cases quickly that kind of have led us in this direction? Absolutely. So there are some great examples, both in the U.S. and abroad, of nature having rights, exactly as you said. So in other countries, we see constitutional provisions to a right of nature. And here in the United States, we have indigenous governments giving rights to things like wild rice and rivers. And so courts are being asked to adjudicate these rights and define these rights within the statutes and the constitutional provisions. And they're considering everything from Happy the Elephant at the Bronx Zoo <laughs> to hippos in Colombia. Well, let's talk about, you mentioned uh, the rights of, it's hard to say this, the rights of wild rice, right? You yes. just say that, yeah. So give me an example. What, what kind of rights does wild rice have? You know, so there's an indigenous group in the Midwest of the United States that has an important cultural connection to rice. Rice is a centerpiece of their culture and economy and way of life since time immemorial, much in the same way that corn is important in other areas of the world or wild animals like salmon in the Pacific Northwest. And they have given the wild rice, which is central to their way of life, 
rice. Um, and so in some ways, it looks like we're doing something new, right? We're giving rights to rice. But on the other hand, maybe a way of looking at it is to say the rice has always had rights in their way of living. And now the law is just recognizing what has always been there. Okay, so the one way is these things, you know, trees, animals, rivers, picket, has a right to exist without us harming it. There's like an intrinsic right to nature to do nature things. But then what about flipping it and saying we should protect all this stuff because uh, it's also essential to us? Like, hey, let's not destroy the world because then we won't be here. Great point, right? There are two ways to frame this. The second way is that anthropocentric way. It's because of human interest. So even if someone doesn't feel particularly connected to nature, they might still want to exist or want their children to have a sustainable life on the planet. And we have this hidden biodiversity crisis. We talk a lot about climate change, but there was recently an article in the New York Times that said there's an even bigger crisis this biodiversity loss, the sixth extinction that we're on the brink of. And if we don't act and act quickly, humankind, which is interconnected with every other living thing on this planet, will also go extinct. Now, you know, though, of course, that there are people who get very worked up about these sort of, of things and, you know, and they worry about, like, what now? Are, are our house plans going to sue us? That kind of thing. I mean, do people need to worry about this being taken to perhaps a, a, an extreme or even a ridiculous degree? Sure. I mean, I think a lot of people enjoy certain things in their way of life. They want to be able to eat a hamburger and have a house that doesn't have rodents coexisting with it. And I have to say to them, I'm exactly the same, right? But I think it is possible to continue certain ways of living, but also recognize that animals and wildlife have needs as well, and that we have to acknowledge those needs. So this proposal, I mean, the idea of giving rights to nature isn't the same as other animal rights movements in the past. It's a whole new distinct idea and way of life that doesn't necessarily preclude things that people rely on and are comfortable with. So it sounds really radical, but it turns out that when they actually hear the idea of people ranging from cattle ranchers to indigenous groups, legal scholars, and you know, my family in rural Northern California have all gotten on board. It sounds crazy, but when you unpack it, it's probably the way of life that a lot of people think we should live or maybe already are living. Where in our human laws does the authority for this come from? Where, where does it center with? Yeah, it's a great question. I think scholars are trying to figure it out. Uh, the late professor Christopher Stone at USC is seen internationally as the right, the leader of this movement. And he saw the rights as happening through the courts. So common law rights through tort damages. But you have a lot of legal innovation here. This is a really rapidly growing thing, field. And you see it in constitutional provisions in indigenous governments in the US and in countries like New Zealand and Ecuador abroad. Um, you also see it in property law. Uh, the majority of United States states today have laws that allow things like pets to inherit property. So animals are already participating in our legal system in this way. So you see constitutional provisions, statutes, common law and property law principles sort of weaving together to create a new legal landscape for you, this. You did say that pets have the right to inherit property? That's exactly right. People don't know much about this, but in the last 10 years, most American states, red states, blue states, have enacted laws allowing pets to inherit property from their human owners. What is my dog going to do with the house, though? Yeah. <laughs> That's a great question. What kind of breed <laughs> of dog do you have? <laughs> well, I don't, but I wish I did. Um, <laughs> theoretically, what does the German Shepherd do with the house? I leave it. <laughs> It's a great question. Well, I can say less about German Shepherds, but I have an Aussie doodle and I think he would like a nice pack of sheep in my Phoenix yard. 
<laughs> and how does the dog pay for the lawyer? You know, it's a good question. So the cool thing is that law has this structure already. It's actually not that radical to expand rights to the animals because we've had legal structures for a long, long time, hundreds of years that allow people who can't represent their own interests to own things. So for example, children can inherit from their parents if the parents unfortunately pass away and the kids are represented by lawyers and by the estate and by the system of trust. So trust law is incredibly stable and incredibly well developed. We also let ships and corporations own. So expanding the ability to own to animals isn't such a stretch. Karen Bradshaw, professor at Arizona State University's uh, Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law. And then the book, The New Animal Rights, How Uncovering the Biological Origins of Property Can Save America's Wildlife. You, you grow things, don't you? Yeah, I grow things. So are you going to now look at them in a different light? I mean, I'm still going to eat the strawberries and stuff, but... Yeah, but they may sue you. <laughs> well, so, you know... We'll worry about that later. You better lawyer up. <laughs> I'll get to them fast. Yeah. All right, more in-depth's on the way. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. For many food banks across the country, they're facing a perfect storm of challenges leading into the holidays. High demand for meals from the needy and a squeeze on food supplies thanks to the ongoing global supply chain crunch. And then you can throw inflation into the mix. Not only are staples harder to come by, but everything's more expensive. And this hits just as we're going to the holidays when the food banks do their heaviest volume. Michael Flood, president of the Los Angeles Regional Food Bank. Michael, thanks for being here. So uh, how are you guys doing over there? We're hanging in there. Uh, as you described, certainly there, there's some issues uh, externally that are putting a lot of challenges uh, on food issues. I, I'd say the inflation issue you mentioned is really impacting, you know, families and individuals. Um, you know, it's affecting all of us who go to the store and are making these purchases and seeing uh, prices for meat, dairy, eggs, uh, a lot of different items go up. And especially for those that have uh, just a limited monthly income, that just means less food for them. For those going to food banks, what might they notice different this year, if anything? Well, you know, we're still in pandemic response mode, you know, 20, 21 months um, after the pandemic hit, I mean, our, our volume of food is still more than double what it was prior to the pandemic. Um, so people are coming, they, they are seeing uh, the food supplies. You know, most of our food is donated and donated locally uh, or in California, especially for produce. So that, that doesn't really be, is, is not impacted by the supply chain issues. Um, so, uh, but again, the demand is still very high and uh, we're doing what we can to bring as much food in as possible. Because a lot of our partner agencies like to do something special for the Thanksgiving holiday and for the upcoming December holidays. So there's a push to get uh, additional food out there uh, for those that are just struggling to feed themselves. Yeah, are you having to stretch like not as much can go out to each person or each group as, as you normally would like to give? Yeah, there's always some kind of rationing to the agencies that goes on. Um, you know, we we do purchase about 15% of our supply. Turkeys is a good example. We don't see a lot of turkeys donated. So this year we purchased more than 20,000 turkeys for our partner agencies and for some of our direct distributions. And um, yeah, those have to be parceled out. Uh, certainly the demand is higher than that. And that's a good example where, you know, prices are higher, 
there's some de- uh, supply issues uh, and the overall demand out there, you know, is higher. You know, the local unemployment rate, we're still at 9.4% here in LA County. So we're higher than the state average, higher than the federal average. Um, so we, we're still seeing a pretty strong demand for food assistance. Now, of course, we're getting closer to Christmas, too. How does the food situation look for that? About the same as, as this uh, donated food. A lot of our donations come from retailers, manufacturers, produce companies. We also get food through USDA, U.S. Department of Agriculture. That's coming in pretty strong. It's more around food purchases that uh, there's some challenges there uh, just because of what uh, we're all hearing and reading about regarding inflation and some difficulty accessing uh, some food items. So what can people do to help you out? Obviously, if you have the means, now is probably a a good time to try and donate either food or or something monetary, because if the 15% is costing you more than it ever has before, you're gonna eventually notice that. We are, we're, we're feeling it. And uh, that's where we really encourage people to, uh, to donate, to volunteer. They can go to lafoodbank.org. They can also find their local agency to provide support directly to them. Food pantries and agencies doing great work throughout Los Angeles County um, and volunteering. So there are lots of ways for people to help and uh, we do get a lot of support from the community and are very appreciative of that. I was going to say, is there anything uh, other than, of course, the availability now of vaccines, but from the food bank perspective, that's better this year than last year? Yes. I mean, the you know, a year ago, we all remember it was before vaccines. So we're all, we, you know, we we're running these distributions, drive through distributions and the like. But there was so much uncertainty last year among our staff and volunteers, you know, how contagious COVID-19 is and the like. So having the vaccine out there, um, it, it does really, uh, it's a huge improvement just from keeping people safer and just having kind of more kind of a known situation regarding risks that are out there. So that, that absolutely is a huge improvement. Michael Flood, president of the Los Angeles Regional Food Bank. Well, we are all a little rusty when it comes to cooking the turkey, the mashed potatoes, the Brussels sprouts, and more. Uh, I have actually never done any of those things, so I'm very rusty. You know what you do with the potatoes? You mash them. Oh, is that what you do? Yeah. Oh, I always thought that we'll was... We'll put a, you in charge of that one. I thought that was a mistake when... <laughs> when what have you done those. to these? Yeah, you mashed a perfectly good potato. But there are many of you I know who are rusty, so when we come back... We're going to have a little bit of a tutorial for Thanksgiving dinner. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Cooking the Thanksgiving meal under the best of circumstances can be tricky. Turkey is unforgiving, fine line between something nice and something tasteless. Uh, Now consider that most of us didn't do a big dinner last year because of COVID, so maybe you're feeling a bit rusty. So... With your mental wellness in mind, because we are we so care, giving, yes, because yes, we care about you, and with the hope <laughs> of helping you turn out a tasty and stress-free kind of Thanksgiving <laughs> meal, relatively, relatively, yeah, we're bringing you a refresher course on some of the most popular Thanksgiving dishes. And with us now is Edwin Rowe, who's executive chef of the Riviera Country Club in L.A. Thanks for being with us, chef. Charles and Mike, thank you for having me. It's a so, pleasure. So here's the thing. Uh, my theory is, and tell me if I'm wrong, I think most people really don't like turkey. They like all the stuff 
that's around the turkey. They like the the stuffing. They like the cranberry sauce. They like Mike shaking his head. I love stuffing. Yeah, but but the turkey itself, I think most people really don't like. Am I right? Uh, if it's prepared right, it can be actually real delicious. Um, the key is to brine the turkey a uh, minimum of 24 hours, depending on the size. Um, typically, birds are around 12 to anywhere between 12 to 24 pounds. Um, usually, 24 hours on a brine is perfect. The key to the perfect brine is, uh, this is a secret, it's one cup of salt for every gallon of water of brine. The key is you want to dissolve the salt um, into the water, so therefore you, need, you might need to heat it up and then cool it down real quick before you actually submerge the turkey into the brine. Once into the brine, 24 hours is perfect. And we do that to make sure that it's actually moist and tastes good and isn't just dry turkey that Charles says everybody hates? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So the key is to, to get the, uh, the salt to permeate into the actual cavity of the bird. And it also helps hydrate the bird so it's nice and juicy once you do roast it. So let's talk now about the thing that I still maintain, <laughs> with all due respect to turkeys, what most people really like in Thanksgiving dinner is, is all the trimmings, right? So are there certain things that are kind of like old-fashioned, out of style, and, and new stuff has now replaced it? Or do the old fundamentals still uh, win out, and what are they? Well, you can always approach things in a new way. Um, traditional has always proven to be best, especially here at the Riviera Country Club with our members. Um, they, they love the traditional sourdough stuffing with sage, parsley, um, lots of onions and celery, and a really nice chicken stock to really hydrate that stuffing before you bake it off. What else you got? What, what do you put on your table? Um, traditionally, we always have, um, stuffing. We always have yams. Um, this year we're going to actually roast the yams and serve them with some candied pecans. Um, we also always have a green bean casserole, which is fairly easy. Um, it's basically steamed green beans with, uh, a little bit of bechamel and cheese as well as some mu fresh mushrooms on top. Um, mac and cheese is always a big hit with the members, uh, we traditionally use white cheddar um, and a little bit of fontina just to give it a little bit of sharpness to it. Um, and, you know, Brussels sprouts, uh, we also do, we, we do glazed winter vegetables. So uh, we'll get like parsnips, rutabaga, uh, we'll, 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 we'll roast those off and then we'll glaze them with a nice honey and thyme mixture. Um, so it's, it's, it's really, there's so many different uh, applications that you can go with. Um, but the best advice I can give to you is keep it simple. That's the best way. The more you try to complicate things, it typically ends up as a disaster. Yeah, Something I, catches on fire. Yeah. I was going to yeah. ask you, Chef. I mean, there are people who get really tense. I mean, they, they start getting all upset and wound up like a month before Thanksgiving because they fear having to make Thanksgiving dinner. So how do you kind of calm them down? I kind of have the same anxiety. You know, I cook for a lot of people for Thanksgiving. Um, but the best way to really approach it is, first off, to have a plan. Um, set, out, set, set, set your day up. Um, have some time to start things early. The more time you have, uh, the less of a rush it is. And, you know, you really want to make sure that turkey is cooked through all the way. Um, for me, the key is low and slow. Uh, the, more, the higher the heat, 
the drier it tends to be. And if you're going to brine 24 hours, well, you get to start soon. I'm, I not, mean, gonna, I'm not going to brine anything. <laughs> you have to plan I'm that not, ahead. I'm he's not done, brining yeah, he's, anything. Yeah. He's ordering it in. Um, give me a few, oh no, I've run out of this ingredient that I thought I had, but now I don't. Give me some like quick swaps that I can you know, substitute in an easy way. Um, like, oh no, I ran out of butter. What do I do? Butter can always be substituted with um, any sort of fat, um, whether it be, um, you know, my wife is actually allergic to, to dairy, so we use a cashew uh, cheese at home, which tends to work really well with um, oat milk or anything that's, you know, vegan. Um, there's always options. You just have to really look into your pantry as well as kind of what you have in the dry goods area, whether it's potatoes, um, bread. Um, there's all sorts of options. You can even do pasta real quick and hmm. just toss that with butter, um, whether it's a penne pasta or macaroni pasta. And, you know, everybody has a little bit of Parmesan cheese in the fridge. You can always sprinkle a little bit of that in black pepper. And, you know, there you go. It's an instant 10-minute meal, meal. Let me ask you about something that some people, when they hear this, are going to salivate and some people <laughs> are going to go, yuck. But I read, Chef, that in the, I guess, the last century in the U.S., and even in some parts of the country now, that it isn't turkey that's the main course for Thanksgiving dinner, but, wait for this, raccoon. Wow. <laughs> how do you cook, I've heard of how, how do you cook a raccoon? It's not on the menu at the uh, country club. <laughs> uh, yeah, that sounds very vague. Uh, I've you know I've heard of goose or you know maybe duck or something a little bit out of the ordinary. But wow, raccoon! Um, I, I personally I would not touch it. Uh, I wouldn't even attempt to cook it. How would you cook uh, the raccoon? I wouldn't is the answer. Yeah. <laughs> But I'd imagine you'd have to skin it, get all the, the skin off, and, you know, maybe you might want to smoke it and just to, to add some flavor to it and heavily spice just to get rid of the aminess, <laughs> I'm guessing. So, so the um, bottom, the yeah, bottom, that's a question I've never been asked. Yeah, the, <laughs> the bottom line, Chef, is, is, is stick with the turkey, stay away from the raccoon. Exactly. Okay. Keep it simple. All right. Yeah. Don't get too... Uh... <laughs> Too fancy with your raccoon dinner over there. Uh, Edwin Rowe, executive chef of the Riviera you know, Country Club in Los Angeles. You know, Mike, it just occurred to me, if you really want to, like, keep, you know, relatives or friends away. Yeah, tell them you're serving that. <laughs> tell them we're going to. Send out the menus yeah, a, a few rac- weeks before. They're like, well. Roast raccoon. RSVP by <laughs> November 1st. All right. Uh, happy Thanksgiving, everybody. We'll be back yeah. next week.